Today is the last day of our Life's Too Short series, and so I kind of want to recap what we did. First week, you remember that I said, life's too short to play it safe. You remember I brought my lazy boy, my lazy boy, and I put it up here, and I found a couple of lazy boys, and we put them in there, and we made them very comfortable, and then we said that God doesn't spend one second trying to figure out how to make your life comfortable. What God wants you to do, what he wants to do is he wants to mold your character because your character you get to take with you into heaven. And so he doesn't want you comfortable. He wants to call you out of that comfort zone to do something for him. And for some of you, that's going to be go on a mission trip next year. The, uh, I was at Praying Pelican End of Summer Missions this, this last week. And every area location, so there's like 50 folks. So the, the guys from Puerto Rico were there that, that managed Puerto Rico and the girl that manages Cuba and, and the guy from Appalachia and just all of these different people. And so when they found out that I was on the board of Praying Pelican, they're like, you need to come. And so everybody's like, come to Cuba, come to Appalachia, come to Puerto Rico. And like, man, I would love to go everywhere with you. Uh, just had a great time up there. Some of you are going to be called. And the, the Haitians caught me in the corner and they said, Doug, Haiti is opening up again in the spring and we have you down to come next summer. And, you know, and they're just laying it on thick. And so we're already committed to go to Belize. We don't know if we get to go to Haiti, but we know that, that they are opening up for teams in, in the spring. So we need to be praying about that is the point of all that. God's calling you out of your comfort zone. Second week, we talked about um, life's too short to work all the time. Uh, and, and we talked about there's this temporary things that we invest our time in and there's eternal. You remember I put people up here on stage and I said, and they, they had things like um, work and school and, and just different things. And we said those things were temporary. The only things that I had up here on, this, on stage that were eternal were, were people. God's will, love, people, those things are eternal, but the enemy of God gets us to focus on the things that are temporary and pour all of our value and our time into those temporary things so that when we leave this world, we don't have anything to take with us into the next world. And God says, we need to pay attention to what's eternal and what's eternal are people. Last week, you remember, we talked about grudges and how we, we carry those grudges and we nurse those grudges. Oh, we love you little grudges. And I had the backpack that had John Colander's name on it, a man of his advanced age and, and fragile stature that he could. I'm now in the 55 club, so I can't give him a hard time. He, he couldn't wait. till I turned 55 on Friday. He turned 55 in May. Brad Anderson turned 55 back in December. So they're all going, 55 club, yeah, high five. And be sure that Brad, both of them said, be sure and go to Denny's and ask for the senior breakfast. I forgot. I'm a senior. I can get the senior breakfast. At Denny's, yes. And I don't even care if they've made smaller portions. It's cheaper. And I'm all about that. But anyway, today um, we're going to talk about life's too short to pursue things that, that God hates. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions. Number one, here's the first statement. How many of you heard this statement that God is love? Heard that statement, right? How many of you heard this statement? God hates sin. Now, most of you, because you're in the church, but outside the walls, which one has people heard more? God is love or God hates sin? God is love. And which one do people want to talk about more outside the walls of this church? God is love or God hates sin? Oh, God is love. We want God to love us. We don't want God to talk anything about sin. But here's 100% true. The Bible says that God is love. Keep going. 100% true, God hates sin. It's what the Bible teaches. We're going to talk about that today. And whether you believe it or not, it is God's love for human beings that cause him, causes him to be so passionate in his hatred of sin. Now, yesterday, as I was in here, I was working on the computer, and everybody was sorting clothes, and, and we got to talking about um, wedding showers, because somebody has a wedding coming up in their future. And uh, 
And, and they actually said that I'm invited to this one next week because it's the trim shower and, and all of the spouses come. And, and you do not understand how much I despise wedding showers, baby showers. I mean, my wife made me go to our own. But, but, and so I said, I said out loud, I hate wedding showers. And so Brad and Cassie are right here in their sorting clothes. And Brad stops and he goes, Doug, hate's a really strong word. And Cassie's like, yes, it is. And I said, okay, how about this? I loathe wedding showers. And they go, that's a better word. That's a better word. And I said, well, come tomorrow because we're going to talk about something God hates. Let's figure out what God hates. It's in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. And I'll probably go next week, Matt. I'll go to the thing just because you have to go and there's other dudes that will be there. But anyway, here's what God hates. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. When I was a kid, I was like, is it six or seven? I mean, it's like six, and he's like, oh, yeah, here's a seven. So there's seven things that God hates they are detestable. Number one, haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So let's take each one of these. What does God hate? Number one, pride. A haughty look is pride, and, and pride is like poison. And if you are bitten by a poisonous snake, wherever you are bitten, what happens to that part of your body? It begins to swell up, doesn't it? So when you think about pride, you think about someone, their head, their ego gets big, their chest, you got some dudes out there, you know, and their pride is hurt, and their chest swells up. You said, what to me? And they look so intelligent when they do that, right? It's, it's this thing that causes us to swell up. And, and I believe the reason God has it number one on the list is because almost every other sin comes from this one sin, this sin of pride. Um, and here's what it says in Proverbs about pride. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If you want, to be, if you want destruction in your life, then be a proud person and, and be proud that you're proud. Now, one of my favorite stories, we shared this weeks ago um, when we were looking at King, King Nebuchadnezzar. And um, this is in the book of Daniel. And so Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world on the planet at that time. And he was, he was a very proud man. And so he has this dream and he calls Daniel in to interpret the dream. And Daniel turns white as snow and he doesn't want to tell him. And, and so his name, uh, his Babylonian name was Belshazzar. And he says, Belshazzar, don't be afraid to tell me the dream. Tell me. And so he says, okay, king. He said, king, I wish this was about your enemies, but the Lord has shown you that he is going to humble you. And he said, there's going to come a time in your future when, when God makes you crazy. You're, you're going to lose your mind. You're going to go out and you're going to be like a cow. And his hair was going to grow long and his nails were going to grow. He was going to lose his mind. He was going to eat grass like a cow. And in my mind, he's going to say, moo. You know, I think that's what happened. And so 12 months later, he's forgotten what God had said. And, and he says, he goes out and he looks over his balcony. He says, look at my kingdom that I have created. No sooner had those words come out of his mouth than the dude thought he was a cow. And they didn't know what to do with a king that was a cow, so they took him out, and they, they, they <laughs> took him out to the barn, and he lived, for, the Bible says, for seven times. And we don't know how long that is, whether it's seven months or seven years. We just know that homeboy was crazy and thought he was a cow until at the end of that time, he looks up and he says, you are the God of heaven, and immediately God restores him. So here's what Nebuchadnezzar says in Daniel 4:37. after he's been restored. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king, capital K. There is a king, and he says, I'm not it, and I'm going to glorify the king of heaven. 
because he does every, everything he does is right and his ways are just. Now look at this, look at this. He's speaking that which he has experienced. And those who walk in pride, he, capital H, God, is able to do what? Humble. Would it be humbling to think you're a cow? Yeah. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves. Who's supposed to humble you? Humble yourself. Therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. See, in the Bible, pride always equals failure, and humility always equals success. That's on your listening guide. Pride always equals failure, and humility always equals success. See, we hear a whole lot about the inferiority complex. I remember way back when I was in grade school, way back when John was in grade school, we, were heard, we heard about this self-esteem, and you've got you to build up the self-esteem of the kids because there's this inferiority complex. Can I tell you a superiority complex is actually more dangerous to you and to the world around you? It is, the, it is the sin that Lucifer had when he was in heaven. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be superior. He was cast out of heaven. He is now the accuser of God's people. Superiority complex is much more dangerous than an inferiority complex. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So you have a choice according to Jesus. If you exalt yourself, what, what's going to happen to you? You will be humbled. But if you choose to humble yourself, what does the scripture say? You'll be exalted in the kingdom of heaven. You need to choose. See, the greatest act of humility in history was Jesus coming down from his throne in heaven, being worshipped by angels in this incredible heaven, and he put on skin so that he could die on a cross for your sins and for mine. Second Corinthians, Paul says it this way, Second Corinthians 5, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Before you get into heaven, you have to bow before God. You have to humble yourself before God, admit that you're a sinner, that you cannot save yourself, and you accept the grace that God offers you through Jesus. You've broken the commandments. You need Christ. You see, no one walks into the presence of God and demands to be adopted into his family. You will adopt me, God. That's not how you get into the family of God. Years ago, had a lady in my church, and she was, she was considering divorce, and she'd been told by folks she didn't have a biblical reason to divorce. And she said these words, never forgotten them. She said, I'm going to divorce my husband, and God has to forgive me. And we were going, oh, no, he does not. If you, if you are proud, he will humble you. It's only the humble that he forgives. No one demands to be in God's family. Second thing God hates is lying lips or just lying is what we're going to say here. Now, here's why. It's not so much the words, it's, the, it's what the words are intended to accomplish. Your, your words are like fiery darts, fiery arrows sent out on a mission to destroy someone else's life. That's what God hates. And when you lie, you open up the doors for the unholy spirit. There's a holy spirit from God. There's an unholy spirit from the devil, the accuser. And when you lie, you open up the doors for the unholy spirit to invade your life. But when you speak truth, no matter how difficult it is to speak truth, you open up the doors for the Holy Spirit to invade your life. Now, think about this. How many of you had to teach your children how to lie? Did you, do, you watch them. You, did you just do that? No. Did you have to teach them how to lie or did you have to teach them to tell the truth? few of you my kids lied from the time they came out the womb 
right? You have to teach them to do what's right. Where did this deception, where did this lying come from? Jesus tells us in John 8, 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he speaks, when he lies, he speaks his native language. This is his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. So when Satan shows up the very first time in, in Genesis, Adam and Eve are in the garden, he shows up and he starts speaking lies to them, and they had a choice. Can we, we're going we're gonna to follow the truth of God, or we're going to follow the deception of God's enemy, and which one did they follow? The deception. And the moment they did, they became bound to sin. They were in bondage. And so when Jesus came, thousands of years later, he came to set people free. And he tells you how, how he does it in John 8, 31 and 32. And he's speaking to some Jews who had been bound by sin. He said, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, there's the key, you have to hold to his teaching first. You have to obey him first. If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples, then you will know the truth. And what will the truth do? It will set you free if you want freedom it comes through truth not through lies third thing god hates is murder in in the proverbs it says hands that shed innocent blood the sixth commandment says you shall not what murder this is actually it does not say kill that's the wrong translation because in the Old Testament, as well as in our country, if someone breaks into your home and they are going to, uh, they, they intend harm for you, you can shoot them. And that's not called murder, is it? What's it called? Self-defense. And so the Bible says, it doesn't say don't kill. It says do not murder, premeditated murder of someone innocent. Someone comes in my house, that's not innocent. That's a mistake, right? <laughs> oh, we won't even go there. Uh, so you shall not murder now, but it's not just physical murder. Look what the Bible says in 1 John three fifteen. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a what? Oh, no. You ever had hatred in your heart? Ever carried a grudge like we talked about last week? The grudge doesn't belong to you. God says vengeance is mine. Look what he says, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Not all murderers are behind bars, only those who physically kill someone. But there are folks running around who regularly murder other people's reputations with their mouths. The Bible actually says you can strike someone with your tongue. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah was a prophet. He was telling the truth. People didn't like it. And in Jeremiah 18, 18, the New American Standard says, they said, let's strike him with our tongues. Let's say thing that, things that tear down his reputation so that people will not listen to the truth. And we've talked about it over and over in Proverbs 18, 21. Your words have the power of life. Your words have the power of death. If you were here during our summer blockbuster series, Mr. Deeds, we were talking about words of life, words of death. Your words, you have to choose which one you're going to do. You speak truth, words of life. You speak lies, words of death. Now look what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now listen to what he says. Do not be, what's this next word? Deceived. Don't buy the lie. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then some of the most remarkable words in all of Scripture. And that is what some of you were. You're not that anymore. All of these things, these people don't go to heaven. Some of you were those things. What happened? It tells us next. But you were what? Washed. You can't wash yourself. You cannot become clean enough. You were washed. 
You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God hates physical murder, but he also hates verbal murder. And you need to be be washed from that. Fourth thing God hates is wicked schemes. Wicked schemes. See, the law, our law, judges you according to your actions, but God judges you according to the attitudes of your heart. Look what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 28. Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'm just going to tell you, there's not a man alive who hasn't looked at a woman lustfully in his heart at one time or another. That, that Bible, Jesus says he's an adulterer. That's what some of you were before you were washed. It's the attitude of the heart. See, God hates the wicked schemes because wicked schemes lead to wicked actions, which lead to wicked habits, which lead to bondage and death. And Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin, what we deserve, what we've earned for our sin is death. And this is, this is spiritual separation from God. That's what one sin does. It separates you from God spiritually. So you must be washed. And see, the, the problem is a sinner can so willfully sin so often that they are then identified with their sin. I mean, if you come to Celebrate Recovery, you'll see that a lot of times folks have done something so much that they are identified with their sin. And so what we have to do to break that cycle is we say, I'm a Christ follower who struggles with whatever that sin was. Because they've so done it that everyone in their life says, that's who this person is. And then Jesus speaks words of life and he goes, no, that's what you were. I have something better for your future. Words of life, words of death. Fifth thing God hates is those who rush into evil. And another way to say this is is he hates people who have no resistance to sin because that sin is identified with them. Go back to the Garden of Eden. When, When Eve saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, what did she immediately do with that food that she saw that was good for food and pleasing to the eye? What'd she do with it? She took it and she ate it. And then what did she do? She turned and gave it to her husband who was where? The Bible says right there. Homeboy could have stepped in and said, nope, God said, but he didn't. He abdicated his responsibility. And when he ate is when sin entered into the world. See, people who rush into evil always want other people to rush into evil with them. It's not enough fun just for me to be evil. I want you to be evil because misery and evil love company. Evil thoughts and wicked schemes, if nourished, they will grow. It's like what we talked about last week. You, you nurse that grudge, it will get bigger until you will justify some of the most wicked, evil things because that person deserves it. What they did to me, it's grown, and I'm going to get them back. God says, no, I'm not going to do that. Sixth thing that God hates is a false witness. Now, this is... This is very similar to lying that we were talking about other, uh, earlier, but this one's in a special category because a false witness can cause someone to be thrown into prison or even killed, right? In the Old Testament, there's a, there's a queen, a wicked queen named Jezebel. And by the way, if, if there were pictures next to all of these things that God hates, it would be Jezebel next to everyone. You do not want to be associated with Jezebel. She was wicked. Um, and what she did was her husband was kind of spineless, 
and he wanted this, this vineyard. And so he went and asked the guy, Naboth, he said, can I have this vineyard? Will you sell it to me? And he said, no, this has been in my family. And besides, God's word said, you're not supposed to sell it to another family. You're supposed to keep it in the family. He said, no. So he comes home, he's pouting, and the wicked Jezebel says, why are you pouting? I'll take care of this. She goes and gets some worthless men, tells them to lie against Naboth. They kill Naboth, and then she comes back and says, go buy his land. He's dead. She was a wicked person. And she murdered him, even though she didn't throw the stones, she murdered him by hiring the false witnesses and getting them to do that. It was also false witnesses they brought in front of the religious leaders to condemn Jesus. (laughs) So if Jezebel's picture is next to these things, your picture can be right next to hers if you decide to murder people verbally. If you do not take their reputation seriously, you can be just as guilty. Seventh thing God hates. One who stirs up conflict in the community. Uh, I had to look this up this morning because just the Lord put this on my heart. Titus 3.10 says, warn a divisive person once. Then it says, warn them a second time. And then it says, have nothing to do with them. How many of you have ever met divisive people in churches? How many of you have ever known divisive people to be leaders in churches. We celebrate them, not we, but but in churches I've seen, oh, they're so spiritual, and I'm going, are we looking at the same person? Because Scripture says, warn them once, warn them twice, then get away from them, because God cannot stand it when His people sow seeds of conflict, especially in the body of Christ. How can non-believers ever take us seriously if we're running around planting seeds of conflict with other believers. Jesus said, they'll know you're my followers, my disciples, by your love for one another, not by your seeds of conflict, not by your gossip. We need to get this right. See, we've come to think that it's a harmless thing to whisper gossip. We think it's not a big deal to stir up conflict in our homes, in our schools, in our work, and in the church. And God says it's detestable to him. In fact, in Psalm 133.1, it says, How good and pleasant it is for brothers and sisters, so we're talking about the church here, to dwell together in what? Unity. Which means it's bad and unpleasant if we don't. Are you with me? Are you tracking with me? How good and pleasant it is when Christians dwell together in unity. How bad and unpleasant it is when we don't. And it doesn't mean you think everything alike, but it means you're in the, you're in the same boat going the same direction, working to bring glory to Christ. Everything else is secondary. Go back to the number one, pride. The reason we have conflict in the church most of the time is pride. And what does God think about it? Does he love it or does he hate it? He hates it. What it says in Ephesians 4.31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. So there's a lot of words there, a lot of using your mouth there. God says, get rid of it. And then look what the half-brother of Jesus says. James says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worth how much? It's worthless. I love James. James just doesn't pull any punches. He says, you don't keep your mouth in check, don't tell people you're a Christ follower because your religion is worth nothing. Proverbs 11, 12, and I think I'm going to have to bring this back up next week. The Lord's really putting it on my heart. 
Whoever derides his neighbor has no sense. Zero. But the one who has understanding holds their tongue. I think it'd be awesome if sometime we came into a meeting, you know, you come into church, whatever, and there's a whole bunch of people. They did. I'm holding my tongue because the Bible says people understand you hold your tongue. Because that's not what we see, is it? You want to talk about grieving the Spirit? people who come in here and say they're going to worship the living God. Oh God, how great are you? And with the same mouth, they verbally assassinate their neighbor. The Bible says you got no sense. We can't put up with that. Now if you're guilty of one or more of those sins, and by the way, you're guilty of one or more of those sins, let me just help you out. You don't even have to think about it. What can you do? I put this on the screen and I need to, I need to tweak it a little bit. There is little you can do. I should have said there is nothing you can do. There's no good thing in us, the Bible says, but there's something God's already done. You can be washed. You can be sanctified. Sanctified means not only are you cleansed in God's eyes, but he makes you better and better and better the more you look like Christ. The Apostle Paul said the secret is this. Do not, be conf- do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You can't transform yourself, but God can transform you. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When you invite Jesus into your heart, this is the power of God. He can turn your tongue, which used to speak evil, into one that only speaks good. Tell me there's not a God. Right? Because I can speak evil. Because there's this, there's this evil nature in me. If I speak good or if I hold my tongue, if you ever see me holding my tongue, you know there must be a God, right, who has more power. Jesus can heal your heart to where you no longer want to speak evil, where gossip, slander, maligning, malice will no longer provide you pleasure. Wouldn't you like to be in a church like that? How can it be? Well, through Jesus' death. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Well, how do we get this life? In John 1, 9, it says this. If if we confess our sins, confession means I agree I've messed up. I confess, God, I have messed up. He knows it. You know it. He's just waiting for you to humble yourself and admit it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And what will he do? He will forgive. You You can't forgive your own sin in the eyes of God. He has to forgive you. And then look what it, and he'll do what? Purify. Oh, I'm filthy. Yep. God can purify you from all unrighteousness. It's not, just, it's not just some theological theory. It actually happened. It's happened to me. It's happened to millions of people throughout history since the time of Christ. It's happened to people in this church. They have been changed, so you know there must be a God. <laughs> and look what, look what, here's how it happens. In Romans 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And the gospel means the good news of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of that because it is the power of God that brings salvation. The good news of Jesus is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. So the same power that that raised Christ, the same power that has transformed other people can transform you. And and you may say today, and you, you would be right, I'm guilty of every one of those sins. And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the message. Such were, were some of you. 
such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been sanctified by the blood of Jesus. God can forgive you because of what Jesus did. And you need to understand, God hates sin, but he loves you. Just as a parent despises the bad behavior of their children, but still loves the child. Your heavenly father loathes, he hates the forces that would pull you down from a Christless eternity. But he loves you with an infinite love. But here's the deal. This, this whole salvation thing, this being adopted into God's family, will never be forced upon you. You have to accept it. So here's what it says in John 1.12. Yet to all who did receive him. Yesterday, we had all kinds of clothes. We had polo shirts over here on the counter. We had bags of groceries over here. We even had a few bikes that, that we donated. What if somebody had walked in and, and we said, all of this stuff is free to you, which is what we said. And they looked at it and they go, nah, I don't want it. Does our free gift do them any good? Neither does the free gift of eternal life do you any good if you never receive it. The people that benefited from yesterday took their trash bags and stuffed them full. And some of them got a second trash bag and stuffed them full. And then we gave them the bags of food. And some of them couldn't carry them. Some of the folks couldn't get out. And so we carried them out to their cars for them. They benefited from the gift because they received it. You will never benefit from the free gift of God until you receive it. You don't do anything to earn it. It's free, but it's the most costly free gift you will ever receive. Have you received it? That's what I want to know today. Have you received the free gift of God? And I'll tell you how to do that in a minute if you haven't. He will forgive. If you receive that gift, he'll forgive every sin you've ever committed. And he will transform you from the inside out. And if you'll keep following him, you'll be set free from all that stuff in your past, all the sins in your past. And you'll look more and more like Jesus until you die. And that's the goal. Because you're going to carry your character with you into heaven. And oh, I don't have time to go into this, but there's a verse that says these, these bad things have happened to you so that the genuineness of your faith can be proven and the genuineness of your faith is of greater value to God than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. God wants your faith to be purified because you're going to take that with you to heaven. And it usually happens through difficult times. At least for me, Greatest lessons I've learned have not been when everything's going good. When I'm most teachable is when I'm at the bottom and all I can do is say, God, I need you. Would you bow your heads for a minute? I just need to ask today. And, and I don't want you to look around, but I need to ask, how many of you have asked Jesus to forgive your sin and lead your life? Would you just raise your hands? Okay. How many of you are not sure that if you were to die tonight that you'd go to heaven? Would you raise your hand? Okay. Here's what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then John says this. He said, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It's possible to know it according to God's word and it's you have to receive the gift of Jesus Christ. When you do that, when you say, God, I'm a sinner and I need you, he immediately adopts you into his family. 
and write your name in, in what's called the book of life. And Jesus is the only one that opens that book. And, it, and when you die, if your name is found in that book, he's going to say to you, welcome to your new home. If your name's not found in that book, which means you've never asked Christ to forgive you and lead you, then the Bible says that God will say, depart from me because I do not know who you are. How sad it would be to have heard the truth and reject it for a bunch of lies. So I'm just going to give you the opportunity. If you raise your hand, if you're not sure, here's, here's how we say it here. You just pray silently where you are. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I have messed up royally. I've probably done everything on this list of things you say you hate. Would you forgive me? And would you adopt me? If you pray those words from your heart, the Bible says that not only are you adopted into God's family, but it says that the angels in heaven are rejoicing right now because another sinner has come home. Some of you are Christ followers, but you hadn't been living like it. And if somebody were to watch you for any amount of time and then they were to take you to court and, and charge you with being a Christian, there wouldn't be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian. It's time you came back and you started acting right like your father wants you to ask. So 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. So you just take a moment and say, God, here's where I've messed up and be specific. Don't just say, forgive me, God. If, if there's specific sins, you confess those specific sins. And then you ask God to fill you and use you. And he'll do it. Father, I thank you for yesterday and just a chance to give out and to watch our people as they participated in just giving something away for free and people asking, how can you do something for free and nothing's free? And it was awesome to listen to some of those conversations. But God, that's just a taste of what you want from new life. Raise up a bunch of people that are not content to sit on a chair for one hour every week. They want to serve you. They want to become like you. They want to lead people to you. They want to make a difference in this world and in the next. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.